0: Today on Blue 58, it's time to talk about one of the most discussed positions on the Packers roster, wide receiver. This unit is almost completely different from 2021, while still carrying quite a few familiar faces. So how is all of this going to shake out? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of ThePowerSweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink happy to be with you here for another episode. Just a reminder that we've got our ongoing podcast scholarship uh, pitch process going on. Your pitches are due by 11:59 p.m. next Friday, not this coming Friday, next Friday if you'd like to be considered. I would love to have your pitches and I'm interested to see what you come up with. Also a reminder that we've got a new way for you to interact with the show. Uh, check out our new voicemail option in your show notes uh, through SpeakPipe. Uh, listen to uh, or, or give us your your questions with your actual voice and hear yourself in a future episode of Blue Fifty Eight. Fun thing, I think uh, I think it's going to be pretty cool. All right, wide receivers. Packers wide receiving core is unusual in twenty twenty one. No more Debon- Devonte Adams. No more Marquez Valdez Scantling. No more Equanimee Saint Brown. You know, varying levels of input there on the Packers' wide receiver depth chart. But just the fact that none of those guys are around anymore speaks to a bit of turnover in Green Bay. On top of that, they've added two, at least three, or three draft picks this year. Christian Watkins, Romeo Dubs, and Samori Touré. On top of that, you throw in Sammy Watkins, and you've got an entirely different receiving core more or less. They carry over Alan Lazard and Randall Cobb from last year, as well as Amari Rodgers. And they're going to try to make do with that, heading into what could be another one of the last seasons of the Aaron Rodgers era, potentially the last season, depending how things shake out and what decisions he makes in the future. So what do we make of these Packers wide receivers in 2022 right now? Frankly, I have a hard time contextualizing it because I don't know if I've ever really seen anything like it. Thinking back over the time that I've both covered the Packers and you know been a Packers fan, the only two seasons that really come to mind are 2015 and maybe more accurately, 2002. Let's start with 2015. And that year, you had Jordy Nelson tear up his ACL in the preseason. And the Packers bring in James Jones as a quasi-replacement, but also lean pretty heavily on Randall Cobb and Devontae Adams that year. And it more or less starts out pretty strong and then kind of falls apart for a variety of reasons there, but it was not pretty that season. Devontae Adams had a number of injuries and a second-year regression, I think we can say, and James Jones and Randall Cobb, I could think their skill sets were not really suited to being primary options and never really have been, but workable in the right context. That maybe is the negative option for what could happen for the Packers in 2022. But in 2002, The Packers bring aboard via trade Terry Glenn from the New England Patriots. They've got 2002 first-round pick Javon Walker on the roster. They've got 2001 second-round pick Robert Ferguson there as well, as well as the lightly heralded Donald Driver, who steps into a bigger role for the first time that season and does pretty darn well. Now, I think 2002 is probably a, a pretty good example of how things could go well for the Packers in terms of their receiving room shaking out. For starters, the Packers that year were not really built around the passing game. Brett Favre didn't have to carry the Packers that year the way that he did in the past, because that year the Packers had Amon Green really rise to stardom in a way that they hadn't seen shoot in in a long, long time. He runs for 1,200 yards and seven touchdowns as the Packers are in kind of a transition year. But in, in the passing game, things shake out pretty evenly between some of those higher-end targets. Um, and the Packers kind of make over their receiving room on the fly. Donald Driver steps up into a bigger role for the, the first time, really, has 113 targets, 70 catches, just over 1,000 yards. Terry Glenn, I don't know if it's a if a if it's a resurgent year for him, but fifty-six catches for eight hundred and seventeen yards is not too shabby, Average nearly fifteen a catch. And then you have smaller roles for Robert Ferguson and Javon Walker, twenty-two and twenty-three catches apiece, respectively. Bubba Franks is a regular contributor. Amon Green is a regular contributor in the passing game. The Packers don't really have a star receiver, though Driver is the most productive statistically they have quite a few producers up and down the roster. They've got, let's see here, six different guys, seven different guys with at least 20 catches, four with 50 or more. That's pretty good. And I think if you're looking for a model, at least historically, of how things could shake out with a bunch of guys that have physical talent, but not necessarily, aren't necessarily decorated receivers in their own right, maybe not yet, um, that may be if not the best case scenario, one of the better case scenarios. So that brings us to 2022. Let's take a look at each of the guys the Packers have on the roster right now, rating or setting expectations for each of them on a low, moderate, or high scale. There's one guy, I should say, in that group who has I pretty much have no expectations for this year, but we'll discuss all of them in, in due course. I also want to talk through what we can hope for from each of them in terms of what it would take to, to meet those expectations. Danny Davis is the only receiver on the Packers roster right now for whom I can't honestly say I have or can honestly say I have no expectations in 2022. He seems a little bit like the Jonathan Ford of Packers wide receivers. He Went to a, a, a big big name program at Wisconsin, but wasn't particularly productive while he was there. Wasn't a particularly good tester. Honestly, it's not really clear why he's here because this is different than what the Packers have done in terms in the past in terms of their flyer prospect receivers. Usually they like to go with elite athletes or guys who have at least some elite traits, and he doesn't really have any of those. He's behind the eight ball, even if we did have something that we hoped for him in 2022, uh, just because of the, the depth chart ahead of him. Um, there's so many guys who have significant experience in Green Bay or the NFL. There are guys who are draft picks. There are guys who are high draft picks. I mean, he's not going to make it ahead of Christian Watson. He's not going to make it ahead of even Amari Rodgers just because of who Rodgers is as a draft pick. Unfortunately, that's just how it works. So he's probably on the outside looking in. And I think he's going to stay that way even beyond the final roster cutdowns because I don't see him making the practice squad either. So let's move on to Malik Taylor. So far in his Packers career, he's basically been a cameo player. Just a guy who pops up now and then. You see him and, well, away he goes. He disappears again for a few weeks. But he has stuck around and I think it's easy to see why. He's got fairly good size, got good physical attributes. He can return kicks. He can cover kicks. You can work with a lot of that. But in terms of what we expect from him in 2022, I think we have to have pretty low expectations because he's in danger, I think, in, in very real danger of getting depth charted out of town. He's not bad per se by himself, but the Packers added at least two new versions of him. You've got Romeo Dobbs, who can do the special teams, or Romeo Dobbs, who can do the special team stuff, who's a pretty good receiver, who's a good athlete. You've got Samari Tore, who in a lot of the same areas is as good or, or maybe better than Taylor is. So how can Taylor then stick around? How he can how can he meet expectations this year? Well, it's like I said there, stick around. If he manages to stay on the practice squad, it's a win for him because there may be opportunities at some point this year. And I think he is going to spend some time on the practice squad this year. It may not be a full season stay, but we haven't seen the last of Taylor in Green Bay yet, I think just at least in part because of that special team's ability. I wish I could say the same for Juwan Winfrey because a lot of people and the Packers included, seem to really like him. To me, he seems like the more offense-oriented version of Malik Taylor. Has some nice attributes, a good size-speed pairing for Winfrey, but there have just been too many additions around him. When the Packers needed wide receiver bodies last year, they turned to Jawan Winfrey, ahead of Malik Taylor, ahead of Amari Rodgers, but now they've got other options. So our expectations, I think, have to be, accordingly, pretty low. He, too, is getting depth charted out of towns. Dubs and Ture are going to take Taylor's reps on special teams. Guys like Christian Watson, uh, Sammy Watkins, and, again, Romeo Dubs are going to take Winfrey snaps at wide receiver. I think there's a chance that he's going to stick around. Not a big one, but I think that is his avenue towards meeting expectations this year. However, even though there's a chance he'll stick around, I think ultimately he won't. I don't think he's going to make it to the practice squad this year. I think the Packers would prefer special teams depth uh, to wide receiver depth. And at wide receiver, I think he still has just pretty limited upside anyway. So I don't think he's going to end up sticking around in Green Bay this year on the 53 or on the practice squad. Samori Touré. I think you can position him as the latest in a long line of fairly interesting seventh-round wide receivers. We already talked about Donald Driver, drafted in 1999. Throw another one your way, Charles Lee in 2000. Uh, Fast forward a few years to Brett Swain in 2008, Kevin Dorsey and Charles Johnson in 2013, both interesting prospects, though they didn't do much in Green Bay. Jeff Janis in 2014 is probably the the recent epitome of seventh-round interest at wide receiver uh, for a lot of Packers fans. And then in 2017, Malachi Dupree was the object of everybody's attention for quite a while, though he did not stick around in Green Bay or the NFL for all that long. Toure, I think just by definition of his role, is going to have pretty low expectations in 2022. We're not going to see a lot of him on offense, but I think there is a good chance that we're going to see a lot of him on special teams. He seems like the guy the Packers are going to turn to a lot as a like a, a punt team gunner, uh, maybe some stuff on, on kick return and uh, kickoff coverage. Uh, And I think that's his ticket to meeting expectations in 2022. He's got to carve out a role on special teams. And when he's out there on offense, because he may show up from time to time, he just can't look out of place. Look like you belong on an NFL offense. I think Ture is going to stick around, and I think he's going to make the 53. In fact, I think he will end up leading Packers wide receivers in special team snaps this year. That's my big, bold prediction for him. What about fellow draft mate, Romeo Dubs, as we move into the more moderate expectations category? Dubs seems like a good litmus test for scouting because he was pretty darn productive in college, on offense and on special teams at Nevada. His good physical attributes, it seems like he can do a lot of different things. And yet he slid to the middle rounds of the draft. So did the scouts get it right? Should he have been drafted there or should he have gone higher? What's the accurate read on him? If you're looking just before his career even gets started, he has the guy or the profile of a guy who's either going to wash out of the league with barely a second thought, or in a few years, we're going to be asking ourselves, how could a guy like Romeo Dobbs have lasted this long in the draft? I think for 2022, the expectations are in the moderate range. He has the, the ability, I think, to play a, real, a really big role for the Packers. But given the depth chart, and given his own developmental curve, I think you have to wonder whether or not he will. I think he is going to, to end up on the field quite a bit, just because the Packers are going to be searching for options for, I think, a lot of this season. Meeting expectations for him, I think, ends up looking like a plus version of Samurai Tore. A little bit of special teams, a little bit of offense, just don't look out of place wherever you end up. I predict that Dubs is going to have more than 20 catches this year. I think he is going to end up on the field quite a bit at some point, either due to injury or ascension. And uh, he will end up being a a fairly noteworthy contributor if, you know, noteworthy is is 20 or more catches. Circling back to 2021 draft picks, how about Amari Rodgers? Now, my thoughts on Rodgers, I think, have been pretty well articulated to this point. But uh, I think it's interesting that we're already doing the best shape of his life storyline with uh, Rodgers here in his second season. We've talked, <laughs> in, well, at least the the Packers media at large has already talked about how he has lost some weight from twenty twenty one. Apparently, he had gained weight over the course of the twenty twenty one season. Came in at two hundred twelve pounds, gained about six pounds over the course of the year. Says he's lost six pounds, but that proves to be a bit of a conundrum because did he lose the weight that he gained or did he lose weight from where he was last year? I don't know. Either way, he says he's in the best shape he's ever been in, which is, I guess, a good thing considering your athletic prowess is your entire entire job. On the one hand, in terms of 2022 expectations, the Packers clearly believe in him and want to give him opportunities. But on the other hand, I'm not actually sure how many opportunities there will be for him the Packers clearly like Randall Cobb as well, who plays a nearly identical role. And you know who else loves Randall Cobb a lot? Aaron Rodgers. Rodgers is the whole reason that Cobb is in Green Bay to begin with. There's also the slight matter of whether or not we should have confidence in Rodgers' ability to take advantage of opportunities when they arise. He had more than a few opportunities to return punts last year, and it didn't go well, no matter how many opportunities they seemed to give him. Sure, he did break a a couple noteworthy returns last year, towards the end of the season in particular. I think overall, the picture on on punt returns was not very good when he was out there. I know I've said look like he belongs quite a few times here in terms of how guys can meet expectations, but I think for Rodgers, that looks like the bar. And The bar should be only that high for him because he didn't look like he belonged on the field last year, and the Packers responded accordingly by taking him off it the vast majority of the time. And I think that's going to be the case in 2022 as well. He may be on the roster. I don't think they're going to cut him outright, but I think he's going to end up playing fewer than 300 snaps on offense in 2022. He's going to be a bit player again this year, if anything. What about newcomer Sammy Watkins? He is a self-proclaimed reclamation project. He thought his career was over. He openly said that his career hasn't gone how he expected it. But now he's got a chance to get things back on the right track. And the Packers, I think, are expecting a lot of him. And I think our expectations should be high along those lines. The Packers need him to be a bridge player. They probably need 10 to 12 solid games out of him to really solidify their wide receiver room. He doesn't have to be a big statistical producer, uh, though if he is, so much the better. But he really just has to be a solid option while Christian Watson, while uh, Romeo Dobbs get up to speed. And I think he meets those expectations by being essentially functionally a no-questions-asked number two wide receiver to start the year and to carry that as long as the Packers need him to. He has to be a legit second option at receiver. That's why the Packers brought him in. And I think that's what they need him to be. Otherwise, things look pretty rough there in their wide receiver room. I predict he is going to be fairly statistically productive this year. In fact, I think more than 40 catches would not be at all that much of a surprise. To be fair, though, he has not done that all that often, especially recently. He's only had more than 40 catches in a season twice since 2016. But I think just being available early in the year is going to let him meet that expectation, meet that prediction. I don't want to say easily because 40 is an inconsiderable, but I think he can get there. Three receivers left, left, each with high expectations. Randall Cobb, 2021 a bit of a disappointment because of how it ended. He was really coming into his own, was a big part of the Packers' early success against the Rams down the stretch that season. But then the core muscle injury, tough injury for any, any player, uh, especially somebody who has to cut and accelerate as often as a wide receiver does, just saps all of your strength and explosiveness. I think he was better than some people give him credit for in 2021. Relative to his paycheck? Okay, I, I hear you. But I I think he could have been a key contributor for the Packers down the stretch and in the playoffs had he been fully healthy. And how healthy was he for that divisional game against the 49ers anyway? Sure, he's back and on the field, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's 100%. And even if he was 100% from an injuries perspective, how in football shape was he? We'll never know. But for 2022, I think the expectations have to be high for Randall Cobb because the Packers have doubled down on him being a contributor. He's not a factor on special teams outside of one brief cameo as a punt returner last year. The Packers are banking on him making an impact on offense. So I think for 2022, he needs to be the injury or the player he was pre injury in 2021. Not necessarily a star not necessarily a huge contributor, but a guy you can rely on to do the right thing and be in the right spots. I think he's going to do that again. And I think he, if he's healthy, is going to be fairly statistically productive again, because Aaron Rodgers is going to get him the ball. And I think Randall Cobb is going to finish 2022 top five in targets on the Packers. Next up is Christian Watson. I would put him as my second highest expectations I would peg him with the second-highest expectations among Packers wide receivers just because of, well, because of a few things. First, because he was their their first receiver off the board. Secondly, because they traded up to get him. Thirdly, because they need him so much. And fourthly, because he has so many tremendous physical attributes. In our pre-draft preview process, we noted that his top relative athletic score comparison was Calvin Johnson. And to be clear, he is not Calvin Johnson. Not athletically not as a receiver. But as we said during the pre-draft process, if you're shopping in the same neighborhood as Calvin Johnson, you're doing pretty darn good. As a prospect, he to me is like the offensive Rashawn Gary. He has every imaginable physical trait you could want. He has size. He has speed. He can jump. He's explosive. I mean, it's all there. But the production wasn't there at North Dakota. He wasn't a dominant statistical performer, though he was plenty good, as we pointed out in the pre-draft process as well. But he's not as productive maybe as some people would have liked him to be, and a lot of that probably had to do with the situation in which he played than the player himself. If he played, well, just as a for instance, if he swaps places with Romeo Dubs, and plays at Nevada, where they're, uh, they are force-feeding him the football all the time, his stats probably look a lot better. But that's what not, not what North Dakota did. And so Watson's stats suffered a little bit. But the Packers still took him high. They still traded up to get him. And so I think your expectations have to be high as well. And you don't produce as a wide receiver the same way you can produce as an edge rusher. He can't just get pressure on the quarterback, can't just affect the quarterback. He has to be making catches and gaining yards and scoring touchdowns. And I think to meet expectations, he really just has to hit those production thresholds. And I think for him, it's 40 catches and 600 yards. I predict he's going to meet that, but I think that's about where he needs to be in terms of having a successful rookie season. Last guy standing here is Alan Lazard. He's the Packers' number one receiver by default. And he's been a fascinating player to watch because I think he's legitimately improved each and every year. So let's see him keep growing. His expectations have to be high in 2022. He is the best existing blend on the Packers of pre-existing production and familiarity with the Packers' offensive system. Sammy Watkins, Obviously, has been relatively productive in the past, but he's new to Green Bay. Randall Cobb was productive way back in the day, but he has declined physically and is not the player he once was, though still good in the right context. So from Lazard, we need wide receiver one production to meet those expectations. And I'm not talking like Devontae Adams' best wide receiver in the league production. I mean just make a legitimate claim to be the primary wide receiver option the first guy that Aaron Rodgers is looking for, the guy who ends up leading the Packers in meaningful statistical categories. And I think he will. I think the Packers, I think Alan Lazard ends up leading the Packers in catches and yards this season. And I think the Packers will be better for it at wide receiver. We're going to talk about the games that changed the game, chapter four, and here in just a second. But first, I want to take a second to shout out Patreon supporters, Michael Strand, Justin Parker, and Sean Hunter. I'm grateful for each of your support uh, throughout this time, I, I'm grateful for everyone who supports us on Patreon, and I'm grateful for everybody who considers supporting us there as well. It helps us continue to do the show. It helps us do fun things like do the podcast scholarship that we're doing this this off season. It helps us just continue to to bring you the best in in Packers content that we possibly can. So, if that is of interest to you, uh, consider joining us at the power so at Patreon.com/slash The Power Sweep and uh, joining us for any dollar per month uh, contribution that you would choose to. It, it's a great way to support support the show. And uh, I'm grateful for everyone who chooses to do that. The games that changed the game. Chapter 4, 1981 playoff game against... Uh, from p- pitting the San Francisco 49ers against the New York Giants. The game itself is kind of immaterial to me in this one. The 49ers won that game, and I think they were going to win pretty much regardless of, of what happened. Uh, but I think it's an important game to talk about. Um and Jaworski does it well, just because of what it meant in terms of the overall development of the league. Now, we talked in the recent past about the Pittsburgh Steelers' defense and how the league changed its rules in terms of what you could do on defense, largely to combat what the Steelers were very good at doing, just beating people up physically along with a couple other things scheme-wise, but making it difficult for offenses to move the ball just by being physical and taking advantage of the great physical attributes of their, of their players. And the 49ers in this game used their offense in conjunction with a lot of those new rules to neutralize one of the game's great defensive players in Lawrence Taylor. We've talked a lot about how it's easy to have really good plays when you've got really good players. But the players and plays distinction works for your opponents, too, because figuring out how to beat the other guys matters a lot, obviously. And Lawrence Taylor is a pretty important guy to beat. If you had any doubt that the NFL is a game of connections, let this chapter put those ideas to rest. Because just in terms of connections to to, to Bill Walsh mentioned in this, this chapter alone, you've got Brian Billick, you've got Mike Holmgren, you've got Dennis Green, heck you've got paul brown and sid gilman who led directly into bill walsh it is interesting in light of that about how much of this game the lead up to this game is about context because this game was the product of context it was the product of bill walsh getting a particular opportunity at a particular time it was a product of um the pa- uh, of the the offense the the nfl and the West Coast offense kind of meeting at the right time. It was a product of um, teams trying to respond to what defenses were doing and what defenses were no longer able to do. Bill Walsh's book on leadership is called The Score Takes Care of Itself. And I think looking at that context really explains why that is such a good approach and why it was such a good approach for Walsh. The point of preparation in Walsh's eyes was to prepare you for success, and he thought that if you prepared well enough and prepared correctly, success was virtually inevitable. And prepare, prepare, prepare is exactly what he did. It was really an outpouring of what Jaworski mentions in this chapter uh, as of as the profesh- as the professional the professionalization of the NFL. Paul Brown and Vince Lombardi were leaders in that, with the Browns and the Packers, respectively figuring out, hey, we really need to have a structure to how we do things, why we do things. It matters. And you've got to do things the right way. And Bill Walsh was all about doing things the right way. Smaller notes from this chapter. uh, Greg Cook is one of the great what-ifs in NFL history. If Greg Cook doesn't tear up his shoulder, does Bill Walsh end up leaving Cincinnati? Does he take over as the quarterback whisperer after, after Paul Brown moves on? and just continue to grow their offense and grow and grow and grow? Would the West Coast offense have developed the same way if you've got big-armed Greg Cook running things instead of uh, building the offense around guys who couldn't throw the ball as hard? Would Cook have been the great player that Montana and Young ended up being under Walsh? We'll never know. The West Coast offense, as spelled out in this chapter, is all about getting first downs. This is the money ball approach to football, Uh, just trying to manufacture getting on base slash getting first downs. Just keep getting first downs and eventually end up in the end zone. And it's interesting to me that the counterpoint to this ends up being the Tampa 2, which is entirely predicated on forcing teams to get a lot of first downs. Just by limiting big plays, you force teams to execute and execute and execute, getting four or five yards at a time until they get far enough downfield that they score. As the Tampa 2 proves, that's hard to do. It's hard to execute at a high enough level to keep stacking first downs that you get into the end zone. Jaworski in this book, I thought, really downplayed the Paul Brown slash Bill Walsh schism. He says that Brown may have thought that Walsh wasn't tough enough to be an NFL head coach. It doesn't really matter what the outside impression was because the inside story on that is much, much worse for Paul Brown because Jaworski only hints at a pretty small part of the story. The truth is that Paul Brown was actively sabotaging Bill Walsh's career. He went out of his way to prevent him from getting head coaching interviews. When people called about Bill Walsh, he said in no uncertain terms, you do not want to interview this guy. He's going to ruin your franchise. Which makes me wonder, how come nobody ever called Paul Brown's bluff and said, if this guy is such a bum, why do you keep him around? Somebody surely had to have wondered that at some point, right? Thought it was interesting that the illusion of complexity came up in this game. It shows you how deep uh, the Fleur, um figure of speech goes. It goes all the way back to, to Bill Walsh, wanting things to look the same at pretty much the start of every play. I thought it was also interesting how we got another great dose of humility from Ron Jaworski. Uh, he didn't buy into the Bill Walsh offense at first because it was different. and <laughs> That is such a, a football, well, maybe not even a football thing, but just such a life thing. Well, this, this can't possibly be a good idea. It's different from what we've always done before. And Jaworski, an NFL quarterback, should know better than most what works he thinks it doesn't work just because it's different, and of course history would have proved him wrong either way. But I think it's big of him that he admits that. Hey, I was I was clearly wrong about this. I didn't think it was work. It would work, because he didn't have to bring that up, but he did. The game itself, again, not overly interesting to me because historically we know what happened here. Bill Walsh wins, the 49 Nineers go on to be some version of a dynasty. And he has success with Joe Montana and later Steve Young. Now, would this game have been different if Phil Simms was out there? Because Jaworski mentions that in passing, Phil Simms was out with a shoulder injury. Do things shake out differently if Phil Simms is at quarterback for the Giants? Fair to wonder. There's a subtext of that kind of thing to a lot of these stories. Yes, this is evidence of how great Bill Walsh's scheme was and, and how it worked against the Giants. But if the other team has all of their best players, does it matter how good your scheme is? Again, we'll never know. In terms of Packers connections, Mike Holmgren is the obvious one that comes up in this this chapter. Also, Mike McCarthy gets a name drop here. But how about this one? George Seifert is Bill Walsh's offensive coordinator, kind of right-hand man in San Francisco, takes over as Walsh's successor in San Francisco. A guy named Mike Shanahan works for a while underneath him. Who goes on to have some fairly significant success of his own and ultimately hires a guy named Matt LaFleur to work under him in Washington and the rest as they say is history in Green Bay. The past is prologue in professional football. That's all I've got for you in this episode of Blue 58. I do appreciate you listening in. If you think this episode was great or even good, I would appreciate it a lot if you would share it with someone you think would enjoy it. That's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation you you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, Smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdick. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.